I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics from personal stories to hot button issues. We cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx, and you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Muses, the podcast all about the wives, women, groupies, gal pals, friends who played a tremendously important role in music history. That's right. I love your shirt today, Shanti. Thank you very much. It's our shirt. Yeah. Rep your own merch. That's right. We have merch for anyone who doesn't know that. And I will put that in the links for the episode as well in case you want to check that out because it's so adorable. And it's been so much fun seeing all our friends and listeners send us pictures of them rocking out them. Everyone, all of the shirts look so good. Yeah, they're really comfortable. The logo turned out beautiful. We have two different logos to choose from. So I'm really happy with it. Everybody in my family has got one. Sent a mug to my mother-in-law, and yeah, it's just a great gift. Yeah, so please check that out. Anything else new? How's Dale? How's Chester? How's Callie? Everybody's good. Dale got his big boy crate today. Um, So we got, it's pretty much one of the biggest crates that you can get. And right now, he takes up about half the size of it. But his other crate was just getting a bit too pinched. And he's such a good dog that we know he's not going to have any, like, issues with having a yeah. too big of a crate. So we'd rather just do it now, let him grow into it. And he seems to be loving it. And I'm just having myself a nice, refreshing Caesar in my Rolling Stones Ooh, I glass. love it. I love it. Perfect. Perfect. Because I do have a, some Rolling Stone stories in this. So good choice. Can I tell you something? Please. So I messaged you before 
we were going to record and I said, I'm going to walk to the store. I'm going to get some stuff for Caesar mix. And if you're American and you don't know what a Caesar is, it's the Canadian version of a Bloody Mary, but instead of tomato juice, it's clamato. It's like, yeah, juice made of clams. I don't know. It's delicious. So I went to the store. I got vodka, clamato juice, a Gatorade, Advil, and a chocolate bar. (laughs) You are ready for this pumping Saturday night. Amazing. So on the way home, I stopped because I walked and... Just outside on the grassy knoll outside the store, I cracked open the Advil (laughs) and I drank the Gatorade on the walk home. Oh my God, that's hilarious. TJ and I had a fire yesterday. We went outside at around four o'clock, five o'clock yesterday and we had a really nice fire. We brought the dog out. We were just cheersing. I had a white claw. He had a beer. We were just cheersing to how good the dog is, how much we love living here. And then, you know, a couple of white claws later, we're feeling good. <laughs> and it's like, why stop now? It's Friday. Also, like, we're feeling great. And then we watched the first part of Elvis's The Searcher, which he had never seen. It was my third time watching, but it was almost like rewatching it all over again. So good. That's awesome. Every time there's an Elvis special, actually, there was one on TV the other day, and I ended up watching most of it because it was like a concert special, and he was oh, just so nice. amazing. Yeah, it was great. It was really great. Yeah, I'm just paying for the the White Claws. Well, luckily for you, I get to tell the story this week, yeah. and you can sit back. Lynx, I'm so excited for this episode. So am I. I really had no idea about Linda McCartney. Paul is possibly, probably my least favorite Beatle. That's not to say I don't like him. He's still a great Beatle. I just, I love John and I love George and Ringo's just so fun. Ringo and Paul are like kind of even for me. So I just never bothered to really research Paul or Linda. I knew about them growing up and everything, of course, but just on the sidelines type of thing. And I had no idea how incredible a woman she was and I I truly am like so excited to share her story awesome and I think it's been a while coming only you know only after five years of doing the podcast (laughs) do we cover Linda but everything in its own time so I'm Mm -hmm. pumped give it to me well it took me a while to track down this book I took most of this from Linda McCartney a portrait by Danny Fields who I also love and we've talked about on the podcast once in a while so when I found out that he wrote a book and that they were good friends for her whole life I was like I was very excited I trust him yeah exactly and this book was really awesome too because while it is a biography he puts himself in it and he shares stories and stories from friends and everything so it felt like I was reading how her friends want to remember her like if you were hanging out with them at a party and they brought up Linda like this is what they would be telling you and everything so it was really lovely to read I just felt a wave of emotion come over me there when I was finishing up this of course she passed away and by the time I was writing that part out I was like getting emotional so hopefully I don't in the episode but we will see (laughs) all right Linda was born Linda Louise Eastman on September 24th 1941 She was the second of four children, the eldest daughter of an upper-middle-class Jewish family from Scarsdale, New York. She had one older brother, John, and two younger sisters, Laura and Louise. 
Linda's mom, Louise, was the daughter of Max Linder, who founded the Linder Company, which was one of the first major department stores in Cleveland. And her dad, Leopold Epstein, was born to Russian Jewish immigrants, and he later changed his name to Lee Eastman. And his sister, Linda's aunt, was a woman named Rose Frisch, and she became a noted scientist who worked in women's fertility. She, like, helped women's fertility movement. Very cool. Cool family. Yep. So Lee, her dad, worked in entertainment law, so he worked with musicians and artists and was really quite respected. Linda was already amused by the age of four years old. Her dad was working with a musician named Jack Lawrence, and at his request, Jack wrote this song called Linda. It was recorded in 1949 by Buddy Clark. It went to number one on the charts, and in 1963, it was re-recorded by Jan and Dean. Oh, no way. Yeah. So growing up, Linda was a champion horse rider. She was very much an outdoorsy type of girl. As a teenager, she discovered rock and roll, and that's sort of when she began to rebel in the usual ways. A classmate in the book describes her as an easygoing, sweet girl, well-liked, but not the belle of the ball type, but nice. She always had a smile on her face. And they also remembered that Linda loved to sing. Because her dad worked with artists, they were always around, and she was really taught to respect musicians, the arts, and everyone who was in that kind of scene and she really had a passion for the art world growing up she graduated high school in 1959 and she received an associate arts degree in 1961 from vermont college in 1962 she was studying fine arts at the university of arizona this is sort of when her interest in photography began she started taking some classes but her focus at the time was mostly on the outdoors and the horses and everything not rock and roll stars just yet she's so cool she is so cool she is so cool like you don't even know how cool she wait wait until i tell you okay so that same year 1962 her mother died in a plane crash oh boy yeah she says that she never really connected to her mother but obviously that was still painful and really devastating for her father So she went home for a bit, but she returned to school pretty quickly, saying that was her escapism from all of that. She almost immediately got pregnant by her boyfriend at the time, who was a man named Meville C. They get married, and she gives birth to her daughter, Heather. But within a year, they're separated, though it took till 1965 for the divorce to finalize, I looked up Melvin. There's not much you can find on him. He was a geologist. He took a job in Africa. He wanted them to come. Linda didn't want to go. And their relationship dissolved pretty much after that. He died. Yeah, he died in 2000. He was 62. Mm. I don't think he was involved in Heather's life. I didn't read anything about him being involved in Heather's life after that. But maybe he was. When her marriage ended and school sort of was off the table, her father refused to help support her anymore financially. So she decided she was going to move to Manhattan with her daughter, Heather, and she found a one-bedroom on East 83rd Street for $180 a month, which is insane. Mm -hmm. That's like the Upper East Side where all the rich people are. Okay. That place would be like well over $2,000 now for like a one-bed, like well over Linda ended up getting an editorial assistant job at Town and Country magazine. She didn't really want to be working like a stuffy type of job. And 
for her, it was just like biding her time until she could figure out what she really wanted to do. Around this time, she began dating a man named David Dalton, who was a photographer. David said that Linda was really into the photography aspect and wanted to learn everything and said to him, if I don't learn to do something well, then what's to become of me? Mm -hmm. So he began teaching her all that he knew. He was actually just getting his start in music-related photography. He worked for Hullabaloo magazine, and in the book he talks about how once he started bringing Linda around, he really realized how much her energy and beauty and just herself really like magnetized the bands and made them focus in a way that he he wasn't able to get them to focus. I like that. Yeah. Denny's book starts actually with Linda finding an assignment for town and country to meet this new up and coming band who were doing a press tour thing on a boat. This band was the Rolling Stones. Hey. Hey. So David didn't get a pass for it, so David asked her to shoot it for Hullabaloo as well. Linda does the assignment. She gets her first photos of the band. They're fantastic photos. You can look them up. They're amazing. And on this day, she officially meets Danny Fields as well. So, wow, so pretty early on. Yes, very, very early on. I don't know if I knew that the Rolling Stones did a press tour on a boat. It's so stupid. And I <laughs> heard that like some of them, like Charlie was like what the hell are we doing but Mick and Brian and Keith you know just were the silly selves and if you look up the photos you can see that they're just being silly and having fun and so um, would I just google Rolling Stones Linda Eastman or like Hullabaloo yeah look up Rolling Stones Linda Eastman there's like a great one of Brian Jones there's ones of her sitting on the couch with them oh they come up right away yeah Danny Fields missed the boat, so he actually asked Linda, can I use any extra prints that you're not going to use and that Hullabaloo is not going to use? So she said, yes, no problem. So this was her first photography assignment. Wow. This is what David says about the photos. It was astounding. They looked like real photographs, where mine always looked like outtakes. With me, it was always an act of luck or fate. But she had an instinctive sense about it, and she really loved doing it. She was so good, and the guys totally behaved. Her work was far better than anything I'd done with a camera, even though I was the one teaching Linda about photography. She just had it naturally. She had that certain special something. Something else came of this event. I'm going to read what Danny wrote. All the girls, now women, who hated Linda for marrying Paul McCartney would hate her all the more if they'd seen the instant fit her and Mick made that day. Really? Yes. So Mick invites Linda out to a party at Jerry Schatzberg's house. He's another big figure in the New York scene and the Warhol scene and everything. She brings David because she's dating David. But she actually went up to him and was like, Mick wants my number and like wants to go out. And David, being an amazing guy, was like, don't waste this opportunity. Like, go go on a date with Mick. So good for David. I think that's what TJ would say if Harry Styles <laughs> said that to me. No, he wouldn't. Precisely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you yeah. want to hear. And again, they're like in their early 20s and, you know, no one's committed here. So Linda's best friend, Christina Berlin, at the time, 
She's also one of the Warhol crowd, Bridget Berlin's sister. She looked after Heather that night and says that Linda came home all disheveled around 5 a.m. So it looked like her and Mick had a great night together. Yeah. Yeah. Linda's quoted in the book saying, This is when my life really began. When there was no father or husband watching over me, photography saved me. It was like, wow, there is life after death because I became at last a really free spirit. Awesome. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta. And I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop. And you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. So just a couple of photography hits for her she photographed clapton for Rolling magazine and she became the first woman to have a photograph on the cover and that was may 11th 1968 and after marrying paul mccartney a photo of both of them was on the cover so that made her the only person to ever appear on the magazine's cover who was also the photographer that is so cool yeah there's a really interesting bit in the book at this point where they discuss the term groupie and how from 1965 to 1968, when she and Paul, you know, became official, 
Linda was really out there having a blast, shooting every rock star you can think of, having all these little romances with them. Danny discusses some of them. He puts out a number at about 20 different rock stars that she probably had little affairs with. Hell yeah. Yeah. And she was photographing like every rock star you can think of at that time so she knew everyone and had great relationships with all of them friendships or more yep i love it so then danny challenges the readers to imagine that compared to paul's numbers at the same time we both know paul had way more numbers than that and he adds a couple tales wild tales from the beatles and of course it's true linda is a badass she's young she's beautiful she's having fun There is a quote about the groupie thing from her in there. She says, I don't care what I'm called. I really don't. The way I define the word, I wasn't a groupie. The LA girls who were the classic groupies, they were very glamorous and often pretty fabulous. I did hang out with groups. If that makes me a groupie, so be it. If people have to pin a single word description on me, there are certainly others I'd prefer. But still, when you know who you really are, How can you let that get to you? Yeah, I can respect that. Yeah, and I love that she also is respectful of all the groupies, too. Yeah, because I hang out with groups, but also she's there getting paid. Like, she's, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I thought that was really great. There's lots of quotes in the book from mostly men who were working in music at the time, talking about how much Linda stood out among all the other women who were around at the time. A lot of this had to do with Linda being a mother and actually having real responsibilities in life. She was almost always sober, alert, sweet, engaging. She went out of her way to help others. And of course, she had that natural beauty about her. When if you think about the same time period, you know, you have like Twiggy and Iggy Sedgwick and all these people who also are incredibly gorgeous, but more image central and like visually Linda was just pared down yeah yeah it was like what we're gonna say probably more minimal not as much makeup she had cool outfits but i don't think she was like well no i think she was fashion forward in her own way but not because she was purposely trying to be i mean she always looks cool as hell even when she looks really cheesy like a little bit later on she's still looking cool as hell so yeah she definitely had her own style own image and she stood out in the New York scene people found her to be very classy very warm Sam Andrew who was in Big Brother and the Holding Company with Janice he is quoted in the book he tells a story about how he was staying at the Chelsea Hotel and it was really cold one winter and Linda brought him a heater for his room so she was just very loving and thoughtful, and people really loved that about her. I thought her. you were going to say she brought him a sweater because she's always wearing all those, like, Nick Carter. <laughs> yeah, big sweaters. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone really loved her, basically, and all the men she encountered were attracted to her. She really had her pick. So she's attracting all the men around, and if you're a beautiful woman and you were around in the 60s, who are you going to definitely have an encounter with? Warren Beatty. Good old Warren pops up in the book. Danny says that he was interviewing Beatty and he brought Linda to do some photos and she took the photos and she left and Warren walked her to the door. And then he says that the next day he called Linda and she was just like, oh, isn't Warren like just so lovely? And he was like, yeah, he was cool. And then Linda told him like, oh, yeah, we had dinner and we had a great evening and like he hadn't even witnessed Warren make the moves on her. He was like that smooth about it, but... 
that definitely of happened. Of course it did. <laughs> Another one of Linda's flings happened in 1990, sorry, 1966 with Jim Morrison. That's mentioned. And Tim Buckley in 1967. Who's Tim Buckley? Jeff Buckley's dad. Hey, then. He's also a musician who is a really great... Uh, you've... D- You've definitely heard some of his songs before if I sent them to you. You'd really like him, actually. He's good. So Danny tells this great story because Tim sadly died young, very, very young. And Linda would always talk about what a great guy he had been. Their relationship had been very short because Tim was into heroin and things like that. And Linda had a kid and that kind of lifestyle was not anything she was interested in. But like I said, he's Jeff Beckley's father. And when Jeff began his music career Linda actually reached out to Jeff and Danny talks about how they had her and Paul had a relationship with Jeff and shared stories about his dad and everything and they were really close before Jeff also passed away very very young okay so those are the only people Danny mentions Linda having relationships with those I guess were the more important ones or maybe they were already known publicly so that's why they're in there I'm not sure Danny very efficiently sums up her courtship with Paul. It lasted 18 months, which is the amount of time between their first meeting and when she moved in with Paul. And four months after she moved in, they were married. So you're saying that they dated for 18 months, they moved in together, and then they got married. Yeah, I wouldn't say dated 18 months. They knew each other. Oh. They hung out a couple times. I'll get into how, I'll get into the courtship. Okay. Love it. So apparently there was this rumor, just like Yoko, that Linda specifically set her sights on Paul because, and someone who I was surprised to find is quite often quoted in this book is Pete Townsend. They were really good friends. And Pete Townsend shares this story that one time they were like having a laugh about something and he threw out a line and her reply was like, oh yeah, maybe I'll marry Paul McCartney, like as a joke and it like fit into what they were saying. But Pete tells that when that joke had been heard, people took it like it was a serious thing, even though he was there and he knows like it wasn't like she was saying, oh, I'm going to go after Paul or anything. But Danny points out like people began kind of calling her like Linda the Huntress and things like that. And of course, Paul obviously pursued Linda and wanted Linda in his life. But this is sort of when Linda starts to get hate. And that's another thing I had no idea about, like how much hate was put on Linda back then, like just as much as Yoko. And yeah, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. We'll get into that. Let's discuss how Linda and Paul met. Let's. In 1967, Linda went to London to photograph some bands for a book she was putting together. One of the bands was The Animals, so she went to a club with them after called Bag of Nails, and Paul was there. So Paul sees Linda, and he immediately says that he was drawn to her smile. So Paul immediately walks up to Linda and introduces himself. So they hang out for a bit that night, but nothing happened. And a few days later, there was a press conference for Sergeant Pepper and Linda desperately wanted to attend and made sure she was able to you can look up those photos as well I sent one to you recently of Paul and Linda from that press conference yeah I saw that picture it was 
awesome. You can see just how much they're engaged with each other. And to know that was so early, I, I always thought that was like when they were dating. But no, that was... He was still dating Jane Asher at this time, I should say. Oh, oh, interesting. Well, when you've got chemistry, you've got chemistry. Yeah, they hung out that day. They had a great time. Then she goes back to New York and she announced to multiple people, including Danny, I am in love with Paul. She, <laughs> she immediately knew. They had only spent about like an hour or two together and never alone. But she was like, oh, my God, Paul McCartney is amazing. They didn't see each other in person again for almost a year, but Paul would call her about four or five times during that period. So he definitely was keeping in touch with her. But like I said, he's engaged actually to Jane Asher at the time. And Danny says Linda really never faltered in her certainty that they were meant to be together. So she was like, I'm just going to wait this out. Like, it's all good. And who knows what Paul was telling her on the phone and everything. Maybe she knew things that other people didn't. In 1968, Paul and John visited New York City for a week. Apparently, it was like very hush-hush because they didn't want everyone to know the Beatles were there. And Linda was one of the only people allowed to see them. Hot. Yeah. Apparently, they did not cross any lines, but they got to know each other a little bit more in this time. A few weeks later, Paul flies to L.A. and he calls Linda and he says, hey, I'm staying in LA like why don't you fly over and hang out with me Linda's friend in the book says the only time I ever ever saw Linda display any anxiety was the night before she left for LA she was remarkably girlish coy shy and nervous yeah I can just imagine like the butterflies and everything wow so she flies to LA and it was there at the Beverly Hills Hotel that their real romance began. But Paul did actually have one more summer affair now that him and Jane, I think they'd split by then, but maybe it wasn't public just quite yet. Paul had another short romance with a woman named Francie Schwartz. Francie wrote a book that I've desperately tried to find for over a decade called Body Count. She actually lived with Paul while they lived with John and Yoko, like all four of them together for like a month or two in the summer. And that because John was just divorcing Cynthia at the time. So, okay, they were both in that limbo. But by this that September, Paul knew for sure, like, it's Linda I want. So he called up Linda and asked if she would come to London. Before I move on from Francie, though, there was a fascinating and heartbreaking moment that she recalled for Danny in this book while she was living with Paul Yoko and John she says that Yoko and John would get fan mail directly to the house Paul would too but Paul didn't care about it but John and Yoko would open all of theirs and one day they found a letter that wasn't postmarked and so John and Yoko opened it and so I'm going to quote the letter here it just said you and your Jap tart think you're hot shit so they were obviously very appalled and upset over this letter and they showed Francie it and she was like disgusted as well and then Paul comes down the stairs laughing and said oh I just did that for a lark oh Paul no yeah I'm quoting Francie here she says as far as I'm concerned that was the moment when John looked at Paul as if to say do I know you 
it was over. It was completely and totally over at that moment. They may have been able to work together, but it was never the same. Oh, shit. Yeah. This book has like a lot of random beetle things that were really fascinating that I didn't know about either. So I threw a couple of those in here, but don't worry. I have some better stories about Paul and John in the future and Linda and Yoko. Okay. Well, you know, on this podcast, we take the good and the bad. We yeah. we don't put anybody up on a pedestal. So exactly. this is what happened. And it does make sense in the time period and everything. So, okay. Danny says that Linda had misgivings and she kind of questioned whether Paul was serious about her or not. She knew that he had all these other women, but Danny really encouraged and also knew that she wanted to go. So he was like, go find out if he's serious. You'll find out if he's not like you have your answer. So she ties up some loose ends. She makes sure her daughter Heather's good and she heads across the pond. So there's a little story like I said, Danny puts in a lot of side stories in the book. I loved them all, though. They were fantastic. Nico was actually mm. staying with Paul at the time. Nothing romantic between them happened, but apparently Nico was like in a desperate place at the time and she had no money. And Paul offered her a place to stay, thinking it'd be a few nights, but she kind of just moved in for weeks. <laughs> and he had to get Paul Morrissey, who's part of the Roar Hall scene to come and get Nico so that she'd be gone when Linda arrived. Yeah, it's probably for the best. Yeah. He was like, I don't know how to ask her to leave. But she vacated and Linda, in September of 1968, arrives. So Danny sums up the Linda and Yoko situation pretty well. He says, Linda and Yoko will forever be known as the women who broke up the Beatles, as if there were a need to blame something that might never have happened or had already happened or would have happened anyhow on two women who did nothing worse than love their men each in their own fashion. It's, there we go. It's interesting that no man was ever held responsible for this ephemeral event. <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. McCall's magazine in 1971 they actually published a story called the two women who broke up the beatles cool Ugh. so danny discusses in the book how paul and john's friendship and writing relationship had really shifted obviously they're not the focal points anymore and never would be again of each other's lives they're meeting these creative fascinating women that they're building partnerships with as well yep and they're both very different, but both exactly what each man looks for in a partner. So it's natural for them to dissolve. Paul and Linda are getting to know each other really well, seeing how right they are for one another. And Linda calls her daughter Heather every night. Paul's talking to Heather on the phone. Paul is kind of creating a family now. Well, his old family, the Beatles and that group are disintegrating, right? That's right. After a few weeks, Paul and Linda went to New York to see Heather and to have Paul meet her dad and brother. They spent a few weeks in New York together. And this is very important. Linda really avoided all of her friends. She says that was kind of Paul's idea. She took him all over, but would avoid places that she knew she'd see familiar faces. Though they did see Bob Dylan and his wife, Sarah, and Linda took photos of them. Oh. Yeah. But for the two of them, it couldn't have gone any better they met her dad. It went well. Linda's daughter, Heather, became very close immediately to Paul. And by the end of the trip, it was decided all three were going to head to London and be a family together. Hey. At this point in the book, Danny describes the Beatles super fans who go 
you know, beyond and do take it too far. We know there is a lot of them. Apparently, they had a name for them called the Apple Scruffs. They would stake out Paul's house every day. They'd sometimes break in. They'd do crazy things. At first, Paul tried to, like, be nice and would let them walk his dog or something to, you know, try to give them something in return for, I guess, more privacy or something, but didn't really work. They were very possessive, and they all loved Jane Asher because she's this British icon as well. So they were not happy that that ended, and now he has this new American girlfriend who's this girl, you know? They really, really detested her. Like, imagine those people on TikTok today. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) They would thrive on that app. They would shout mean things like, go back to America. They'd boo at her. They'd hiss at her. They would try to trip her when she would leave the house. It got so bad that she couldn't leave on foot. She'd have to get a car to come, and then they'd attack the car. On their wedding night, actually, one one girl pushed a flaming newspaper through the front door. Like, it was scary at times. Luckily, Paul had a farm in Scotland, and that was a nice escape away from the madness. Oh, I Um, bet it was beautiful. Oh, yeah. She loved it there, too, Linda. By December, Linda was pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I think it was on Christmas Day in 68 that Paul asked Linda to marry him. But apparently he'd asked her more than once. But that's when she says yes. Okay. Linda said, Paul and Heather were becoming really close. And that was so important to me. And Paul and I loved each other. He told me he fell in love with me the first time we met, and that was so sweet of him to say whether it was true or not. What really mattered so much to me was that he would always tell me that he was falling more and more in love with me as time went on. So beautiful. Yeah. So as I mentioned, they went to New York, and she avoided all of her friends, mostly, I think, and Danny thinks, because all of her friends were press people. And first of all, they wanted their trip to be private but this is also when the Beatles are kind of splitting up so there's a lot going on uh yeah yeah most people didn't hear from Linda for well over a year like Danny who got a random postcard once and there's a woman named Lillian Roxon. I want to do an episode on her one day she was a journalist and she was a great friend of Linda's this sounds familiar yes name. yes They had a falling out because I think Lillian felt like Linda just tossed their friendship aside when she Mm -hmm. met Paul and all of that. And people really took that personally from Linda. I can see that. Danny also suggests that one of the reasons she dropped her friends was because her dad might have told her to stop talking to them. Because at this point, Paul hires Linda's dad and her brother to be his lawyer and manager so it's paul and the eastmans versus the rest of the beatles as they're going through their final year of everything and business issues i think um the other beatles were working with alan klein who also worked with the stones okay so i'm not going to go deep into that there's plenty of beetle books about that yeah uh linda was very disconnected with the business stuff obviously that wasn't her band it wasn't her focus but That's what's going on in Paul's life. And, of course, that's affecting her. On March 12th, 1969, Paul and Linda were married. Paul apparently bought her a 12-pound ring, like, the night before. It wasn't a huge deal. They were married at the registry office. Heather was there. 
As in it cost 12 pounds or yeah. it weighed 12? <laughs> <laughs> Costs right. 12 pounds. I'm sure she got an upgrade eventually, but uh, yeah. And of course, there are tons of angry fans there. They put out a press release. Ugh. Then by August, their daughter Mary was born. So normally this is the happiest time in a relationship, but this is all while Paul's spiraling into a deep depression over, you know, what's happening with the band. So their first year of marriage was not this rock and roll dream. It was very dark times. Paul says, I was impossible. I don't know how anyone could have lived with me. For the first time in my life, I was in a scrap heap. In my own eyes, I'd never experienced it before. It was so bad on Linda. Let's just say I wouldn't have liked to live with me. I don't know how Linda stuck it out. Yeah. Linda says she just told herself, be there for him. Just be there. Be there. And that's what she did. She stuck through it. And when the news officially broke about the Beatles splitting up, apparently Paul spilled the beans, even though he made a deal with John that John would publicly announce it. So just stupid bullshit with those dudes. But Mm -hmm. Paul's in a dark space. Linda's encouraging him to write music and everything. He begins to work his way out of his fear and depression, and he starts working on his solo album, all of which he credits to Linda. In 1970, he releases his first solo album, McCartney. The first song he wrote for it was The Lovely Linda. (laughs) It's interesting to note that Paul is feeling sad and insecure about his split with Lennon, and he's always had this creative partnership, and so he's, of course, going to question his abilities as a solo artist. But then he realizes, oh, wait, I do have this other partner I can lean on. And that's Linda. And John did the exact same. They both ended up making music with their partners after kind of losing the partnership they had with each other. Mm -hmm. Little codependent personalities. Absolutely. (laughs) Apparently, it it really did bother Paul much more than Linda that the public refused to give her the credit she deserves. So this is where Danny Field sort of comes back into the picture. Linda begins to connect with her old friends again. He says that they went and visited him one time and the idea of Linda publishing a book of her photographs came up and asked Danny to help with it, which he did. That took a couple years before it was published. But Danny says Paul, what Paul wanted was a book of her work and he was really into the idea It was a very good moment, and it was all about Linda. Paul loved her and wanted her to shine. He was proud of her, proud of the choice he made, and proud of the partnership that his fans and all the press had questioned the validity of from the very beginning. Yeah, for sure. So they're working on that. Paul's working on the next album, Ram. Linda's pregnant now with Stella. so good. Ram is so good. Oh, it's one of my favorites. It's one of my favorite albums ever of all time. That came out in 1971, and so did Stella, their daughter, their second daughter. The the infamous Stella. As you can imagine, people already weren't fans of Linda, and when she began to get involved in the music, it got so, so much worse. Now, as we know, Linda's dad knows all about publishing rights and all of that and wants to make Paul more money. So six of the 12 songs on the album are credited to Paul and Linda. Now, Paul was actually bound to like another publishing company at the time. And this made it where he kind of got out of that for those songs. And Danny says, basically, people automatically were like, well, obviously she contributes nothing. This is just, (laughs) you know, like that kind of thing. 
And Danny says, when she married Paul, all the girls hated Linda. When she participated in her husband's musical work, especially when she appeared with him on stage, all the guys hated her because this was a Beatle. And how dare she? So that was like the attitude. Mm -hmm. The tragic irony of this is Linda didn't even want to be in the band. Mm -hmm. Linda was Paul's support mechanism through this period, and he wanted her by his side, and she just did it to be there for him. He taught her how to play the keyboards and wanted her to be involved. So, of course, people really picked on Linda for her playing, not being up to par with the others. But she did work really hard. And the band members say, of course, over the decade of her playing with them, she did become a musician. She did learn. She would not only participate, but she would speak up with suggestions. And everyone encouraged her because they really respected her taste in music and her opinion and everything. So she grew into that role. But at first... She didn't want it. She never really felt comfortable on stage ever. And she had all this hate put on her because of that as well, which I can't even imagine how hard that must have been. Right. Danny adds a little personal story that I thought was interesting in showing who Paul and Linda were and like the type of life that they had. He said that when they visited him in New York in 1974, when they were leaving his house, they asked him for cab fare and he was like what you lost your wallet or something and linda was like oh we don't bother carrying money in new york we just tell the cab driver who we are and sign autographs and they wave the meter but when they were coming over to his house it didn't work because the cab driver didn't know who they were so they thought that maybe we should get some extra money so that shows you really like the level of fame and danny mentions people talking about paul linda as like royals and People always had something negative to say about them, basically, and that kind of stuff added to it. But Danny also shares that in this period of time when he was down and out financially, Linda helped him out and never wanted repayment, like insisted that wasn't going to happen. So, you know, they certainly took advantage of their fame, but they were there and close for their friends. And when people needed them, they were more than generous. Okay. Yeah. I'll accept that. I still think it's a shitty thing to not pay cab drivers, but take this autograph. He also adds this line, though. She could be a severe, dismissive businesswoman who had power and used it, not always making niceties her priority, which from some of the stories, I gather that to really just mean like she's a boss lady and there's a time for business. There's a time for pleasure. She was a businesswoman when she needed to be a businessman. There's a time to cut your hair into a mullet and go to a music festival with Paul and David Gilmore and smoke darts. Exactly. It's my favorite photo on earth. I think I've shared it a few times and just like captioned it squad goals. You know that one? I do. I absolutely do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Danny later says in the book, a quote again, she was one of the great tough working women of her generation. Yeah. There's a scary story about them recording Ben on the Run in Lagos, Nigeria. They were advised not to go around on their own because it was a dangerous area, but they did anyway. And Paul and Linda actually were robbed at knife point, and it was very scary. Apparently, Linda yelled, he's Beetle Paul, don't kill him. Mm. And they didn't. They made it through, and they produced, obviously, a great album. Danny Saywell, the drummer for Wings, recalled Linda crying on his shoulder the night before Wings' first concert. He said that she was just so nervous about the scrutiny that she knew was going to come. Linda says, I didn't want to let Paul or the band down. I knew 
they'd say I couldn't sing or play or who does she think she is and they'd be right but I was always hoping I wasn't going to be the headline or part of the review that everyone remembers because it was so funny haha let's think of new ways to say how terrible she is it was too much to hope that I'd be ignored like I deserved Wow, yeah, that's a lot of pressure, and I totally understand that. Like, as somebody who, you know, I'm so much better at public speaking and doing these kinds of things, but to put me on a stage where music is involved, let alone with, you know, some of the best musicians, singers, songwriters in the entire world, holy moly. And you know literally everyone already dislikes you, already expects you to be shitty, like wants you to be shitty. But she did it. She She got on stage. Unfortunately, a huge blowout was about to come because of Linda's old friend, Lillian Roxon. Keep in mind, Lillian was Linda's best friend from 1966 to 1968. Lillian wrote a loving tribute, actually, to Linda when she married Paul. But as the years progressed, she was feeling more and more neglected by Linda, who never reached out because I think Linda felt weird because they did have like a falling out. And Danny says that like, he would try to get her to call, but neither of them made that first move. And things very, very much soured. So Lillian was this really respected journalist, especially in New York. And Linda actually kind of had protection from bad press because of Lillian. And like everyone knew their relationship. You, you know, you don't fuck with Linda or Lillian would come for you. You don't want Lillian an enemy. But in 1973, Lillian wrote... What Danny says is the meanest piece she'd ever written. It was a review on a TV special about Paul. I have to read it. Oh, I know. Yeah. I mean, I want to hear it. Keep in mind, this is like her best, her old best friend. Did you see them in that pub scene? Paul, as congenial and friendly as all get out, Linda positively catatonic with horror at having to mingle with ordinary people. TV special or not, she didn't crack a smile once in that scene, except for a little Novocaine grimace after. I suspect Paul had given her a good hard shove in the ribs. Take away Linda's ringlets, her picture hats, her tambourine, and what are you left with? Sweaty, pudgy, slacked-mouthed Paul McCartney trying to get across what essentially turned out to be little more than bland, easy listening. Not a soul I talked to afterward could remember the names of most of the songs in James Paul McCartney, but they certainly had names for Linda's varied hair arrangements. Her Stevie Wonder multi-braid, her Los Angeles groupie Moulin Rouge topknot, her modified Bette Midler 40s page boy, her quite unforgettable David Bowie split-level crew cut. Fucking love that haircut. Paul revealed himself to be little more than an incredibly generous husband and a great piano player. When he could get the keyboard away from Linda. You are my sunshine, sang the people who gave the Beatles their original vitality. And Linda sat with her teeth relentlessly clamped in a Scarsdale lockjaw. I could have wept. Linda comes across as an incredibly cold and arrogant figure coming to life only when the TV cameras are focused right on her. She's a great beauty and someone should forget about Paul and make a movie with her. She obviously is dying to become a star. You can tell. Um, I just had my mouth open that whole time. Point where she was being protected by this woman because of how vicious she could be. And then there you go. She felt she had been crossed by Linda and sounds like there was a lot of jealousy in there. And yeah, yeah. obviously Linda and Lillian were both very much hurting from what they did to each other and their friendship 
dissolving the way it did. And sadly, Lillian passed away just four months after this piece came out. So they never had a chance to talk and make amends. And Danny says that Linda told him it was the biggest regret of her life not being able to make up with Lillian. Yeah. He also said that when they discussed the piece, Linda never said anything about what she said about her, only that Lillian didn't need to be that mean to Paul. Yeah. Of course, I guess Linda understood it was coming from a painful place. But still, that's what the public is reading about Linda. And with Lillian's piece came more like it. In 1975, the Village Voice had an article and the headline was, Linda, who does she think she is? Mrs. Paul McCartney? (laughs) Another woman who knew Linda from the New York years wrote that piece and was also disapproving that Linda, like, abandoned her friends. So she wrote an angry piece as well. Brutal. That woman was interviewed by Danny for the book, and she actually says that she's been guilt-ridden about the piece Mm. since it was published and that it was karmically hideous. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's one line in it which really says it all. She wrote, Somehow, from the tone in Linda's voice that afternoon, I wouldn't have put it past her to secretly believe that she was really better than Paul. It's just crazy. And to know that she's, like, not that person at all, it just, I I can't imagine how hard that must have been for Linda, like, reading these kinds of, from her friends. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is what the public's believing about her at the time. And Danny says that story was a sensation, the ultimate in Linda bashing, the ultimate in fame bashing. And it actually went so far that other celebrities and their agents were now calling magazines being like, if you ever write something like that about my client, you'll never speak to any of my clients ever again. Like that was such a because I guess if you think about it, most reviews and stuff tend to be more favorable, but those were just total vicious pieces yeah so over the 70s linda got used to the comments they were happening all the time and she started to gain a confidence both with press and musically of course and she started to speak up for herself in interviews and she started to kind of address those things danny discusses their multiple drug busts in the book i'm not going to go into detail it was always marijuana and therefore ridiculous But I'm letting you know it happened because obviously that was another thing they were constantly having to deal with on tour that was stressful and scary. Like things would happen in different countries and you don't know how they're going to handle it. But again, it was just marijuana. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So from 1971 to 79, when Wings recorded seven albums. Linda, right? Yeah. Linda also had another child in 1977. Their last, James. She was pregnant while recording London Town. I haven't mentioned this really, but Linda and Paul really, really cared about their family unit and their kids and were very much hands-on parents. They asked their kids, do you want to come on the tour? And of course they did. So they were always all together. Everyone who talks about them and the kids in the book, they were always amazed at how beautiful their kids were and how loving that whole family It sounds like the perfect family. So that's what's happening personally with them. And someone also mentions, which people don't think about, is Linda is touring full-time and she's a full-time mother. And while Paul gets to rest backstage before the show, Linda's 
not resting. She's being a mother and she has to go out on stage after too. So she was of course hustling back yep. then. Yeah. In 1977, Linda also wrote and recorded her first song called Seaside Woman. <laughs> so everyone needs to go check that out. I sent you the music video. I loved it. <laughs> Linda says that she was inspired by Bob Marley and the Whalers, and she really wanted to create a reggae song. And the video that you watch, there was an animated short film made of the song, and that actually won the Golden Palm for Best Short at the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, wild. Yeah. So one thing I learned from this book that I won't go into great detail because of the time and everything, but there was a lot of issues with Wings and Paul and Linda and the musicians that they would hire for the band. Basically, it's upsetting to know this, but the musicians really felt that they weren't getting paid enough and they weren't. They absolutely weren't. And so money was a huge issue for them. Well, and after hearing about uh, how they treated their cab drivers, I am not surprised. Exactly. Uh, would you, would uh, you, the bass player, take an autograph as payment for tonight's <laughs> performance? Or no? Yeah. Way. And they also never wanted their wives around, which I guess is like understandable. But like, you're 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 paying me pennies i think they all got paid like 175 a week and these are like top-notch musicians playing with paul mccartney that's pennies for what they should be getting paid yeah they have families and everything there's an interview linda did after the band broke up saying that their biggest mistake in the band was who they chose to hire and that paul had to carry the band by himself and like they weren't good players and it was like it was pretty bad at the time when it came out, but obviously they're all kind of hurting from all of their issues. And I think she said that maybe a year or two after they split, so things were still, I guess, not in a good place. But from what I've read, you know, over the decades, they all kind of got over that and were friendly again and good. If you're wondering about John and Yoko, there's multiple stories in the book. And a fascinating one involving May Pang, I thought I would throw in. Oh, yeah. You hinted at this one. You teased me a little bit. You said right. you have to wait. That's right. John and I had our own apartment on East 52nd Street. In January of 1975, John said, I have something to ask you. What would you think if I started writing with Paul? My mouth fell open. I said, are you kidding? I think that would be terrific. That was the last time John and I were ever together before we split up. Yoko called him that night and told him she had a method to help him stop smoking and he should come over to the Dakota. I told him I didn't like him going over there and he said, stop it. He was yelling at me. What's your problem? I'll be home by dinner. We'll have a late dinner and then we'll make plans to go to New Orleans and see Paul and Linda. But when he walked out that door, I knew something bad was going to happen. And when he came back, he was a different person about Paul. It wasn't the same. He was saying, oh, you know how when Paul and Linda used to come and visit us? Well, I couldn't stand it. Obviously, something happened on the other side of Central Park. Right after that, he was back with Yoko, and we split up for good in February of 1975. So maybe Yoko didn't split up the Beatles, but she definitely wasn't a fan of the idea of John and Paul getting back together. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair, I guess. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> <This point. laughs> okay. May actually mentions that 
after she released her book, she ran into Paul and Linda at an event and Linda was like, oh, I always wondered what happened to you and that she'd read the book and she was like so happy to see May and that they were lovely. And so she, she did have a relationship with them after that. Right on. There's another interesting story. Uh, on December 17th, 1975, John Yoko and Bob Gruen were hanging out at the Dakota and the doorbell rang and they immediately are on edge because at the Dakota, no one gets past the doorman unannounced. So they know something weird's happening. So John's like, Bob, go, go see who it is. And Bob can hear what he says is children singing Christmas carols. And then he goes to the door. He's like, it's just some kids. And then he goes and opens it. And it's Paul and Linda singing Christmas carols. And so he, they were all hanging out in John and Yoko's bedroom. So Bob brought them in. And apparently Paul and Linda were singing the carols the whole time. And Bob is quoted saying, you know, when you read about the animosity between them, about how the Beatle wives don't get along, they all seemed like giddy old school chums. The girls were very chatty and pleasant. So he says that they hung out for a while. And when when Paul and Linda left, John and Yoko were both very happy about the visit. I could totally picture that. I know, right? Showing up and. I love that. Yep. Singing a Christmas carol. Apparently, the last meeting between them happened in 76, but Paul and John kept in touch over the phone. Okay. The McCartneys were at home in Sussex when they got a call about John being murdered. Linda says, my God, it was a horrible day. I remember everything. I'd just taken one of the kids to school and Paul was home. I drove into the driveway and he walked out the door. I could tell by looking at him that something was absolutely wrong. I'd never seen him like that before. Desperate. Tears. I can see it so clearly, but I can't remember the words. I just see the image like a picture. There's a story about Paul and Linda going to the Dakota and visiting Yoko shortly after it happened. He's, this is Paul talking. We cried so hard, you know, we had to laugh. Yoko wanted to get us something to eat, and she mentioned caviar. We all said, let's do it. Her houseman brought it in, mumbling, and backed out, and... There was a caviar tin with just a little bit in the bottom. Her servants had eaten it all. So I said, let's ask for some wine. Sure enough, when it arrives, there's a quarter left in the bottle. They had all the wine, too. We were just hysterical, and the relief was indescribable. Mm. So unfortunately, for years after this, Yoko and McCartney didn't have the warmest relationship because of all the Beatle issues. They're still battling like money and things like that. I heard that Yoko was maybe supposed to help get the rights for the Beatles songs that Michael Jackson ended up getting, and that really affected their relationship. But again, over the decades, all those issues have been resolved, and there's no hate there. It's been stated that by 1971, Paul and Linda were vegetarians, but in the book, Danny says that's not entirely true. And I mean, we know that's not true because of the Yoko caviar story. Oh, right. So he says it was like a process for them. It was gradual. That's also how they try to encourage their friends. Like one meatless meal a week is better than none. Right? Right. So, of course, over the years, Linda began to get more and more passionate about animal rights. In the book, Danny comments that as her kids got older and needed less nurturing 
she kind of turned that mothering, nurturing side of her toward animals and saving animals. And she really, really cared about them. In 1989, she put out her first vegetarian cookbook. She's, she's got a lot of them. I looked them up. I'm, I'm going to try to find a couple. For years in the 80s, Linda actually worked really hard to learn and promote meatless frozen foods. And in 1991, she actually introduced her own line of meatless frozen foods, which was a massive success in England. She tried it in the States. It wasn't a success, but it's still going strong over there. Her company is, uh, you can check it out, Linda McCartney Food. There's a UK site. They do meal kits and all the food looks so delicious. But after Linda passed away, it was bought by another company. So I'm not, I don't think the McCartneys are involved in it anymore. Chrissy Hind, who is also an animal activist, talked about how Linda would always be telling her how many dinners they'd sold. But it wasn't like, look how successful I am. It was relating it in terms of how many animals' lives she saved. I live out in the country, and so I pass cows on an almost daily basis. And yesterday we went out for a drive and I saw a little baby calf with its mom. And I was like, look at the baby. And then I feel so guilty because I'm like, I'm going to eat you later. Yeah, I've been a vegetarian since I was like 11 officially. Well, my dad is one, so I kind of grew up with it. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Of, I There's so many good options now, too. Yeah. So this is where Linda's public image really did begin to change and people began to see her for the beautiful woman that she was and that all her personal friends knew her to be. And she became very outspoken advocate for animal rights. And Paul did too. Together they supported a lot of different charities and things like that, PETA. And she was really regarded as like the first celebrity to really publicly talk about animal rights and bring attention to that. And they credit her for like really initiating change. Yeah. And then I just learned like last week and I think it was from, but your friend told me your friend who's the big Simpsons fan. Yes. I was just going to mention Sarah. Sarah. She said that when Paul and Linda were asked to be on the Simpsons, the episode where Lisa becomes a vegetarian they said they would as long as Lisa Simpson, the character, remained a vegetarian for the rest of the Simpsons franchise. Yes. So that was a yes. I loved that. And I think that was probably my introduction to Linda McCartney as a child. And that's why like, I didn't even know that there was all this hate about her. I just knew her as like the vegetarian, you know, that married Paul McCartney and... Again, like I lived a vegetarian life too, so I thought that was so cool. Like I had no idea all of the struggles that she'd been through before and the hate and everything. So it's nice that she did get to experience that shift as well before she passed. Yeah. It was in 1995 that she was diagnosed with breast cancer. So let's do the math. How long has she been with Paul at this point? They got together in 68. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a long yeah. relationship. Yeah. Yeah. Danny says that Linda called him and told him, oh, they found a lump and I'm going to get it checked. Mm-hmm. By April 17th, 1998, she passed away. Mm. 
It was really quick. And she was just 56 years old. Danny says that he saw her multiple times during those like 16 months or so, but she really didn't mention the cancer. She never talked about it in the press. So when Linda passed away, it was a shock to many, except in her inner circle. By the time that they discovered the cancer, the prognosis like wasn't great at all. And of course, Linda went to the best doctors that they could find. But unfortunately, it just was too far gone. So sad. Yeah. When Danny heard the news, he called Paul immediately. And he says that Paul picked up the phone and said, wasn't she beautiful, Danny? Wasn't she beautiful? And he says that Paul ended up consoling him on the phone, even though he called to console Paul. Yeah. It sounds like Linda's memorial, which was at Riverside Church in New York, was just absolutely beautiful and filled with amazing celebrities that were all, of course, her dear friends that knew her best. And they all went up and shared stories and everything. Danny mentions that because she died so young and it was known that she was healthy and lived this vegetarian lifestyle and everything, so many people were shocked and so many women were shocked that it created a surge in like mammograms and things like that. So she probably saved other people's lives oh, wow. by bringing attention to it as well. Yeah. The book ends with a bunch of comments and stories from all these people who really loved her and her kids also. Like Danny says that he was like sobbing at the memorial. And I think it was Stella or maybe Mary who like hit him and was like, she wouldn't want you she wouldn't want to see you doing that and so he stopped and like so obviously her kids knew her and really had the connection and I'm sure that was like terrible for all of them but thankfully they had that family support with Paul and everything this book was like really I loved reading it I'm so glad Danny was the one who wrote it because of their connection and you really feel that in the book and you get a real sense of how lovely a human being she was Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's like, and you probably, you know, you understand she wasn't perfect. She probably did and said some not great things. And maybe she did have some certain days where he, her ego did take over a little bit, you know, and part of it is protection. Part of it is like you're with a beetle and who among us wouldn't. But then she truly was wonderful and generous and talented and all of and creative and all of these things so it sounds like a pretty well-rounded picture of this person and absolutely I'm glad to have learned some new things about her I love her photographs I love the work that she did with wings I love yeah. Band on the Band on the Run and Ram are two of my favorite albums of all time. I love the picturesque, picturesque photos of her and Paul and their dog Martha and their kids, their farm in Scotland. It sounds like a really difficult life at times, but also a very beautiful and loving life. Yeah, and like you said, that's like 30 years. And of course, none of us are perfect every day of our lives and that's the whole point of growing up is to like learn from our experiences and everything. And she obviously grew into the woman she was meant to be. Like she said at the beginning, like what's to become of me. And it's like, well, all of this. And it's sad to know she, if she were alive right now, I imagine she would be doing so much, especially in like organic foods and vegetarian foods and things like that. I think we all kind of lost 
someone special when she passed. Yeah. But um, it's nice that they, she had such a great family and got to live such a beautiful life with them. And yeah, I'm so grateful that she at least got to experience a little bit of the public f- turning and realizing what a spectacular woman she was as opposed to just all the hate from back in the day. She got it hard, yeah. man. Oh, I can't even imagine. Well, I'm really glad that you ended up tracking down that book, and I'm glad that we finally covered her. Me too. Great job. Yeah, it was about thank time. Thank you. Well, thank you. I love you. I love you. Oh. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Oh, we're really appreciative and grateful for you. I'll put all the usual links in the show notes for our Patreon, our TikToks, our Instagrams, our merch, all of that. You can find it there. And thanks so much for, as always, listening and supporting us. And we love you guys, too. We love you, too. And we'll see you next week. See you next week. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantella Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.